Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's a big show today. We're looking at the so-called sports rorts, also the scandal over CPAC and the targeting of Tony Abbott and Andrew Cooper under foreign interference laws. We'll find out why government agencies seem to jump every time the ALP asks them to and question whether or not this just means that the bureaucrats have had another victory over democracy. Plus, of course, China's rolling crisis of coronavirus and what that means for the world. Don't forget, Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to join our 5,500 members, please do go to ipa.org.au and see what you can do to join, donate or just get around our work. As always, we'll close with our books and culture segment, which is a ripper. Uh, We'll be talking about a new book on whether cities can cope with our rising population. I think you know the answer. Uh, A doco on the NFL tight end and murderer, Aaron Hernandez. A 2019 movie, Dr Sleep. And a fascinating new book that Morgan Begg will talk about on the history of America's Federalist Society. It's time now to introduce our panellists. Well, I've already introduced Morgan. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Scott. Also my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. On my right, Dr Zachary Gorman, representing New South Wales in our <laughs> internal state of origin. Oh, I'm sure I'll find a way to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get <laughs> William Wentworth in there. and This uh, is where you get paid the big bucks. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I am. I'm always forget to introduce myself, actually. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review and, uh, as I say, co-hosting here with Chris Berg. Chris, take us away with uh, Bridget McKenzie, sports, rorts, etc. Absolutely. So, for those who have been living under a rock, Bridget McKenzie, the deputy prime minister, sorry, the deputy leader of the National Party, has resigned and quit cabinet after sustained pressure over a finding in mid-January by the Australian National Audit Office that her staff had ignored advice from Sports Australia in the administration of the community sports infrastructure. Grant program. Sports Australia apparently had been complaining about political interference over the choices of where these community sports grants will go. um, uh, When now, there's quite a lot to break down on this. I think it's worth just talking about whether we think anything really happened at all in the first place. Um, So she denied, as we understand it, the minister declined to give all the sports grants that were recommended by Sports Australia um, and, uh, and, and distributed them to other electorates and in other um, community organisations. Now, it seems from my reading of the evidence so far that, in fact, the distribution of grants was roughly equal to or, or roughly um, accords with the number of seats held by each individual party. On the other side of that, though, there's some suggestion that on average, liberal seats got something like $40,000 more than Labor seats, although I'm actually finding it a bit hard to parse out the underlying meaning of that. When I first heard about this story, I was was more on the outrage side, but as we've gotten more information about precisely what has happened, um, I think it's harder to justify the claim that this is outside the normal practice of government. I might ask you, Morgan, what your take is on um, on the sports rorts affair yeah. by, uh, to start. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's, there is nothing. It's not a scandal. Uh, this is not an instance of rorting. I think the... Uh, the, defini- the definition of the word rort has completely just been lost now. Uh, this is a... Uh, well, government itself is a rort. Well, uh, that's right. That's, I mean, that's <laughs> right. So, so th- which is to say that, you know, this is uh, a grants program which was established by the government uh, and uh, the senator, in her role as the sports minister, uh, distributed those grants in a completely, I think, ordinary and unexceptional fashion. But, I mean, it, I mean so, so my sort of take on this is... Um, whether it is clear that um, uh, these grants were made for political reasons, isn't the risk of that a really strong argument against community sports grants in the first place, Zach? Well, it's obviously a complete betrayal of federalism that we've got the federal government involved in this most <laughs> minute of local decision-making. 
Um, but it also goes. The back local cricket club needs change rooms, and yeah, where and else to get it from the Commonwealth of Australia? No, it should be. And again, I was. This is what the founders say, were thinking. I was of. saying I was going to bring up New South Wales, the New South Wales <laughs> system of poker machines, and the proud tradition of leagues clubs, where the basically the more money you give back to the community, the more poker machines you're allowed. I think that's a pretty good system where you turn a societal evil into a societal positive. But it is a very sort of old impulse in Australia, this idea that we hand something over to bureaucrats to try to depoliticize it. And it started with this exact same idea that we're trying to crack down on pork barreling because it started with the railway commissioners in the 19th century where it became such a highly politically charged issue where the new railway line was going to be built that you just passed it off to the bureaucrats and they would make the decision and suddenly politics would be free from sin and everything would be wonderful. <laughs> and it obviously hasn't worked out, but we keep trying it. Yeah, and the, there is a... Uh, sometimes the politicians do vote to put things outside their own purview and it's, it's not for the greater good. It's to protect themselves politically uh, from these things. But this is not one of those occasions and, and this... I, I can't stand reading that uh, like it's some kind of slam dunk that they ignored the advice of the department. I mean, I yep. would hope that ministers ignore the advice <laughs> of the department all the time because because yep. um, they have, uh, of course, first rule of political economy, departments have their own interests, yep. self-aggrandisement, uh, plus they're prey to all, all kinds of foibles. I mean, they can construct um, uh, as they need to all kinds of criteria for things and uh, our colleague uh, Daniel Wild uh, uh, had a terrific column which you can find uh, on the IPA or indeed where it first appeared on the Sky News um, website making the point that uh, you know they, they didn't want uh, a, the, the department thought that a grant should go like half a million dollars or something to a roller derby organisation in Queensland as opposed to a football club. <laughs> and you can look at, you know, the relative numbers of people involved in this um, and you just think, what planet are they coming from? I, I think, though, this – so looking at and, – and I've read into the um, Australian National Audit Office report and it seems to me that this is actually a very poorly designed program in the first place. So it's, it's quite a recent program. I think it started in two thousand and. 18, and this may have been the first round of um, grants given out. And there's some confusion within the department and between within the department between the Department of Health, Sports Australia, and the Minister's Office about who actually gets to decide what these grants are. Now, at the first moment, you th might think that's just bureaucratic mistakes or poor legislative design, but it goes to the heart of this question, which which um, Morgan and yourself have raised: uh, Who are these grants from? Are they from a, a, a stepping back set of bureaucrats who um, have no connection to the political system, who have no role in raising the funds that they're actually distributing? Or are they grants from the minister? And we've been dealing with this debate, in fact, in, in um, higher education research funding as well, where there's this huge debate. Are the grants given by, say, the Australian Research Council, are they from the Australian Research Council? Or are they from the education minister? And if they're from the first, then that means that they have to be neutrally handed out on no particular grounds apart from the quality of research. And if it's the second, well, then they should be handed out based on how the Australian population will respond. Now, the problem is that the governments, governments historically have not wanted to distinguish between those two. They want to hand it over to the bureaucrats when it's easier and they just want to arbitrarily look, make small changes, stick with the, um, the step back but only interfere when they, they feel courage or something like that. I, I just think this is a terrible way that we hand out money to community groups, to research, all these sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I'll just circle back to Zach's point that uh, it is true that the federal government shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, and it's very poorly designed. But um, this, ultimately, I think it comes down to being a, uh, a hit job, uh, a, com a confected scandal, a politically motivated hit job on a on a senator based on you know her party affiliation and uh, essentially a, a, an ongoing temper tantrum about the uh, the fact that <laughs> the coalition won the election now, last now, year. Now tell me, Morgan, <laughs> how how did the Australian National Audit Office actually uh, decide to investigate? Yeah, this well, uh, from uh, one of the great enemies of <laughs> Thank freedom you for asking, Scott. Uh, in Australia, <laughs> it, 
all started from Mark Dreyfus, uh, who acted like a you know a grade three schoolgirl on the playground, uh, tattling to the uh, audit office about, mm. uh, uh, as I understand it, a campaign gimmick. Uh, the candidate for Mayo uh, at the federal election campaign, Georgina Downer, had presented to a. a Bowls Club, or, or yeah. so, so, so having yeah. made the decision to award the grant, yeah. um, then disappeared into the minister's office and, and came out in the ha- with a media release in the hands of Georgina Downer. Yeah. Now we might have an opinion about that, but it actually doesn't go to the to the issue of uh, grant allocation at all. It's, yeah. a, it's about no. how yeah, it was yeah. announced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it doesn't. But yeah. I, I, <laughs> I have some um, grudging admiration for Mark Dreyfus, who clearly knows how to use the system oh, yeah. for political <laughs> purposes. Oh, yeah. is, there, is there a public servant that he hasn't written a oh. letter to no, telling them how to do I, their bloody I job? Think it, I think it's incredibly clever. And if the coalition doesn't yeah. do this from opposition, they are um, cowardly. I don't think the opportunity is... Obviously, we know the political affiliations of those in Canberra. They're very clear from the electoral results. So it's it's hard for the people on the right to manipulate the state in the same way. Well, but the, yeah, well, uh, and so, which brings us... Uh, we'll, we'll lead into the next topic on that precise point, though, because, so, Chris, uh, this was the playbook of Mark Dreyfus uh, in the case uh, which we have talked about before, uh, again, we hope most of our listeners are, are broadly familiar with how the, the first uh, act that we knew of uh, that made it into the public domain about the work of the agencies uh, operating under the foreign interference transparency laws was to target Andrew Cooper and the uh, inaugural Conservative Political Action Conference in Australia. And uh, it's now come out thanks to the sterling work of Evan Mulholland of the Institute of Public Affairs, ipa.org.au, join or donate, um, (laughs) that uh, through FOIs that he'd lodged, that the genesis for this came from a referral from Mark Dreyfus. Um, And what... But the data point that I have is not, here's a letter from Mark Dreyfus. God, there must be hundreds of them scattered throughout Commonwealth public agencies. But you had a timeline there, Chris, in terms of when how long it took for them to act. Yeah, so um, Evan has done some magnificent work um, in... uh, When you FOI the government and when you FOI particularly a department like the Attorney-General's department, um, it is an ongoing bureaucratic dispute um, that you willingly involve yourself in. Mm. I've done it a number of times myself. Um, It is soul-draining and mind-numbing and eventually you get back a massive collection of blanked-out documents that you pull small bits of information about. And I've got in front of me for our viewers, um, uh, rather than our listeners, obviously, I've got in front of um, what Evan has managed to pull up. And when when Evan passed this over to me and I was flicking through it, what I was really struck by is how quick off the mark the um, Attorney General's Department was in looking at um, CPAC. So the Conservative Political Action Conference, which of course is the um, uh, centre of this foreign investment transparency scheme dispute. So the um, legislation was passed in 2018. Um, The moment that Mark Dreyfus was briefed on the legislation's implementation, according to this FOI. He immediately said to departmental staff as well, wouldn't, something like, wouldn't this apply to CPAC? Could you look into that? All right. Apparently, the Attorney General's Department or bureaucrats within the Attorney General's Department then very, very closely monitor the um, uh, process by which they're putting guests up and um, uh, getting invitees for CPAC and so forth. And they start sending letters to Tony Abbott before Tony Abbott and Andrew Cooper and so forth, before CPAC is actually held. So CPAC is held on, um, I haven't got the number here, I think it's August 9th. So they've already sent a letter on August 8th to Tony and, and, and the meeting with Dreyfus was uh, was late late July about late, uh, yeah. late July. So, I think uh, from memory, I think. So so we can talk about the specifics, but what horrifies me, in fact, is the idea that there's a c- 
conservative. There's a political conference, all right? And mm. it's a political talk shop. It's um, we've all been to <laughs> workshops and conferences, and you know, I I, I, I nearly went to CPAC this year. I or last year I couldn't make it, but um, you know, we go to the Friedman conference every year, and these are these are just chat shops for for people to discuss and talk strategy and all that sort of thing. The idea that we've got the Attorney General's Department refreshing the web page of um, who's going to appear at one of our talk shops is, I think, kind of horrifying on the face of it. The idea that they're paying such close attention, a group of very, very empowered bureaucrats, mm. because it's the Attorney General's Department, you know, they, they're the ones with the guns, um, uh, are paying all the attention, all this attention to, to our political debate, I think is horrifying and is it's not an unintended consequence of the legislation. It's the intended consequence of the legislation. It's what it was designed for. And I can't – and we've spoken about this a lot, Scott, and I can't help but think that this is this has been incredible negligence on behalf of the coalition government for passing this legislation. Now, now Morgan, you were really one of the first people to actually pick yeah. this up. Why don't you um, sort of tell us about – um, uh, anyway, your perspective. Yeah. Since I've, since I've shared my very strong feelings. <laughs> I know. That, that's um, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> there's just been a complete failure across the board from our representatives and uh, the, the institutions to uphold rule of law and basic democratic uh, practices. Uh, it was a, a failure of the, the parliament to introduce these laws in the first place in December 2017. Uh, it was a failure, again, of the parliament not to respond to the research of the IPA, which identified this law as uh, being responsible for uh, removing, uh, explicitly removing the requirement to act in accordance with the principles of natural justice, uh, remove the right to silence and remove the privilege against self-incrimination in uh, these requests for information which had no judicial oversight or accountability or no warrant required. It, was just, uh, it just seems to be completely conferring an arbitrary power on the bureaucrats in the department to exercise these powers. Um, and for the parliament not to respond to that by at least amending the law, uh, another failure. It was a failure of Mark Dreyfus to seek to weaponise this law uh, or to use it as it was apparently envisaged. Uh, specifically designed. Designed. Um, to use this against his political <laughs> opponents and it was a failure of the department to uh, respond to Dreyfus and apparently heed his directions uh, and to, uh, as you say, obsess over the conference, refresh this uh, with the website daily and send out, you know, this uh, act, acted within, I think, within 10 days of the meeting with Dreyfus uh, to begin sending letters yeah, this, and to this is the same government enforcement. That, 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 you know, takes them, you know, uh, eight months to pay small business invoices that, mm. uh, you know, it'll... Yeah. it'll Ten years to approve a Dani, but um, yep. but by God, if you've got to investigate That's a bunch right. of conservatives, you can get that done within a week. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think also the thing is that the law tries to um, paint the world this this global this foreign interference as some sort of impartial field where anyone getting involved in Australian politics is inherently sinister. When we know what the law was actually sort of targeting without wanting to say that it was targeting was the influence of China and various other yeah. people that have strategic interests in manipulating Australian politics. We have, we are part of the Anglosphere. We have interactions naturally with America and the UK and New Zealand and these sorts of things that are just all have always been a part of our culture and are just part of the dialogue that keeps Western civilization ticking forward. If you cut those off as it's a bit like um, the section 44 with that apparently someone who's born in the UK is now an agent of a foreign power and all this other ridiculous stuff. We need to be able to differentiate between who are our friends and who are our enemies. Yeah, it's a, um, all roads lead back to postmodernism, and so it's this, <laughs> it's this moral relativism. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a very good point, Zach. I hadn't thought about it that way. And uh, but you can't. But you can't. No. no so so I, I I take your point, Zach. But you can't write legislation that says um, Chinese. It, it, you can't write a anti-China law. Um, and so you've got to. So what they're doing is they're searching for general principles that might be that might both apply to today 
and to the future, but they're trying to apply them on the basis of the idea that there's some nebulous problem working, uh, having um, relationships with people in other countries. And um, uh, there's, there's no way that we can prevent people having, quote, influence in our liberal society. That's what the society is in fact designed to facilitate. And regardless of whether it's China or the United States, we have to argue and fight that in the same liberal society, using the same liberal tenets um, that allows those ideas in. It, sorry, that was addressed to Zach, but I am going to jump in. Okay. Because, um, and please follow me with, with your own point, but no, 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 this, this, is, this is what you're missing, Chris, and this was the point I was going to build on. Um, that that might be that be might be right as a general principle, but I I actually think because of what Zach was talking about, because of this desire not to appear to be um, uh, targeting China or, or singling out China, I think there's a re there's some there's a reverse bias operating in the bureaucracy in the Attorney General's department. I think there is such a fear of being seen to be obsessed with China, um, such a fear of of being um, accused. Um, uh, as the Chinese government is want to do of uh, yeah. of racism, uh, whenever you do something like um, uh, suggest that uh, Chinese nationals can't travel to Australia for a certain period or whatever whatever the issue du jour is, um, I actually think they are willfully ignoring the um, uh, the the most likely source of foreign interference and and instead pissing about on the CPAC website. I I, I think there's a Terrible reverse bias. I think it's symptomatic of something wider going on in Canberra at the moment. So Andrew Hastie, James Patterson, the people who prepared the ground for this legislation by saying we must do something about China interference. I'm sorry, guys. The bad news is you thought the solution was reg registration of foreign agents. It has not actually addressed the issue of, of China's influence over Australian uh, policy making at all. It's actually just facilitating um, some kind of uh, process of looking everywhere but at the obvious thing. Yeah. And I think the other problem is that when you're talking about foreign er interference, inherently you're conjuring up these ideas of sort of sinister that maybe it's the Confucius Institutes that their deliberate aim is not exactly explicit, but nothing could be more explicit than CPAC. Nothing, <laughs> nothing is more transparent as to what it's trying to achieve. It's called Political Action Conference. Yeah, so yeah. there needs to be at least that level of nuance in the legislation, at the very least, yeah. even if it has to treat all parties equally, there needs to be some nuance in it. No, but then, but then aren't, we, aren't we granting precisely what we don't want to grant to bureaucrats, which is the discretion to make those sorts of choices? I so, think so, uh, there now. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what should Parliament do now, yeah. Morgan? What, 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 what should we do with this legislation oh, now? I, I think start again. I, 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 I think legislation like this, I, I, I disagree that legislation like this could be uh, generalised or applied generally. I think when it is something like this, it should be specific, it should be targeted, it should uh, identify... The, the specific problems, uh, and uh, you, of course, you couldn't say Chinese, but you could say uh, agents of the People's Republic of China. I'd be completely comfortable with that. I mean, we're we're a, a liberal democratic capitalist society, and communism is completely and fundamentally incompatible with our society and values. And and I think being proactive against that is uh, completely. Acceptable, and even if, uh, say, the Legal and Constitutional Committee of the Parliament started with examining the legal rights questions uh, which you identified and and which have remain unaddressed, um, yeah. I mean, the attorney A further failure. The attorney, yeah. the response of the attorney general um, has been uh, uh, negligent in two respects. So Christian Porter, first of all, says, "Well, this wasn't the intent of the legislation," but. You know who cares what the what what, <laughs> which he, what again, he thinks he which intends. again is a massive failure. Oh, yeah. we didn't intend the legislation to do this. This is your job. Yeah, that's, this that's, is that's, you have one precise yeah, job, yeah. which yeah. is to write the legislation to do what you want it to do. So if it's not doing what you want to do, and and you've admitted that you can't direct these bureaucrats in the exercise of their powers, review the legislation at the very least. Start a process to review the legislation. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like that's that's ongoing. And one of the problems that we have in Australia is that politicians get. I mean, one of the problems with any democratic system is that politicians get all the credit for passing legislation and none for um, uh, either amending or removing that legislation themselves. Um, and I just 
this has always really struck me in the terrorism discussions. Um, we have made, Australian governments have made the sedition into a crime at least four times since the year 2000, not because there's been an obvious problem in the sedition laws, but because they always get a benefit from, oh yeah, we'll add sedition into this. So they just re-add the legis uh, add new legislation because they get all the benefits from looking like they're doing something and mm -hmm. looking like they're doing something is passing legislation. So if we're to take that lesson onto this foreign transparency, the point is not to prevent foreign transparency. The point is to pass, a, uh, to uh, prevent foreign influence, the point is to pass an anti-foreign influence law. But eventually these get into law and bureaucrats do stuff with them. Well, it's the Gillard standard of governance. The amount of times teaching at university where you would hear people praise the Gillard government for having the record amount of legislation passed. <laughs> yes. That's a nightmare as far as I'm <laughs> Absolutely. Um, shall we... Um, we should actually sort of talk about, because we were originally, Scott, going to talk about the leadership, um, the Nationals' leadership issues. Oh, yes, and we um, briefly. Uh, we should, because um, I'd be interested, Morgan, in your perspective... Um, uh, as someone who's got a bit of a nationals background. Um, yeah. So uh, Bridget McKenzie, of course, um, uh, uh, when she um, resigned from cabinet, um, has led to a really fascinating moment in the nationals um, where Barnaby Joyce pushed for a spill. That spill happened uh, yesterday. Um, and uh, But Michael McCormack, the current nationals leader, has retained his leadership of the Nationals Party, and now the Deputy Nationals Leader is David Littleproud. Um, I was looking at the papers this morning and I saw this wonderful headline, Nationals Leader Michael McCormack says, disunity is over after spill, which <laughs> to my mind implies that he hasn't been paid attention to the last decade of Australian politics. Um, uh, disunity never ends. Once there is a spill, it's pretty much done and dusted. Whether the clock to, is ticking. The now. clock is yeah. definitely ticking. Um, uh, Morgan, it, what does this mean for the for the future of the nationals? Do you think there's a there's a bigger dispute going on within the national party itself? I think so. I think there's been uh, momentum for change among the base of the party for some time. For a change, I think Barnaby Joyce, despite his uh, what you might call moral failings in recent times, uh, is still uh, a favourite of, of Nat's uh, supporters and voters, uh, in my opinion. I saw a, a, actually a poll on um, the, the Paul Murray Facebook page, which, I mean, social media, what, what an authority, eh? And, and uh, but it was... A, incredibly a, yeah, But, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a page which has 120,000 followers in it and, and, and it could be a, a reliable gauge of conservative sentiment uh, in the country, it's a terrific show, Paul. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's right, that's Thank right. Um, shout out to Paul there. And it was, I think, it was seventy-nine to twenty-one percent in favour of Barnaby Joyce, which, uh, which I thought was pretty notable. Um, I think, as I as I said before, the clock is ticking. So I think, uh, in uh, you know, give it a week, maybe two. Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think Barnaby Joyce. Will, will be uh, the leader of the Nats again. And I think that's good for the Nats. And I think Barnaby Joyce is a proven winner. Um, and I think he he has impact. He he does uh, in a way that McCormick doesn't. There's no impact. There's no you – know, no one knows who he yeah. is. And, and, and that's not a, a personal slight on him really, but it's just as a, as a sort of uh, – as a politician who has impact on the, the political debate um, – I, I think Joyce is the superior isn't, option. Isn't the question here, though, about um, what is the future of the national party? What is the what is the role for a country-specific rural regional party um, yeah. uh, overall? And, sort of, uh, and I wonder whether this dispute is actually papering over or yeah. um, the underlying part of uh, the, this dispute is, is there a role for the nationals separate to the coalition? Is there a role for the nationals in representing rural seats i mean what, what, how do you think about that yeah i think the nats especially in recent years have really struggled with that i think it all um we saw it when uh the the nats in new south wales joined with the liberals to ban greyhounds <laughs> which sort of illustrated to people that um the old role of the nats which i always i always appreciated was to stand sort of aside from the liberals and say when things like that came up and just say no stop Mm -hmm. that, that was that, I always thought that was the great role of the Nats was just to say 
uh, the the sort of the times when the Liberals sort of went off on a weird tangent is just to say, no, 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 we're not doing that. <laughs> uh, but if they're not willing to do that, um, then there there is no role for the Nats. Mm. So that's that's the role that they need to rediscover um, if they're going to have a future. And New South Wales is um, a huge part of the problem because yeah. the Nats are already... Here, here, here Zach. Finally getting you across uh, the line. Josh, can we just clip that? The Nats are already isolated to specific states where they have any particular political force and one of the main ones they have left is New South Wales. But there's been a deliberate takeover of the New South Wales Nationals Party by social progressives that don't that are based in Sydney and are less and less representative of the actual country people that they claim to represent. And not only have they been directly sponsoring legislation that has zero approval in the electorates they're meant to um, represent as far as euthanasia and abortion and these sorts of things, but they're doing it after the last state election where they lost a couple of seats to the Shooters and Fishers who were very shrewdly rebranded themselves the shooters, fishers and farmers to try to capture that oh, protest yeah. vote. Yeah, well, and, and of course one of the winners out of this was um, uh, David Littleproud. Uh, and this is, uh, maybe it's not for me to judge, but I do note that uh, his effigy was thrown into the Murray and floated down towards um, uh, the Murray mouth on the basis that he was being identified with defending the Murray-Darling Basin plan. So I actually don't agree that the shooters, farmers and fishers party is about social issues it's actually about real rural issues it's about the um, impact of the drought and how that relates to water policy um, which we've we've covered uh, in the IPA review last year I think there's real issues there and um, instead of say a ticket of Joyce and Canavan who was the architect of the Queensland strategy I mean there's a reason why 24 out of 30 seats in Queensland came came back to to, um, and Scott Morrison was able to say, how good is Queensland? Mm. Um, now Canavan's out as well. And instead you have uh, McCormick, who nobody knows, and uh, Little Proud, who's carrying the baggage of issues uh, like yeah. water allocations under the Murray-Darling Basin. So I, think, I think it's potentially disastrous for the Nets. Yeah. That's right. Does anybody have any takes on the Greens leadership spill as well? Uh, no. <laughs> so Richard Di Natale um, has, has resigned and... Put in um, and Adam Bant has won the Greens leadership ballot um, of whatever six of them there are or something like that. Um, Scott and I were talking about this before the show and we we're trying to think, well, we can't really tell the difference between either of them anyway. Is, is, there, is there a take in the room? I think, mate, <laughs> I just the one that everyone's been pointing out, I know Amanda Stoker pointed it out, is that the most progressive party in Australia replaced a middle-aged white cis male with another <laughs> middle-aged white cis male. Um, but may, maybe there is some sort of strategic shift in no longer having a senator as the leader of the party to look to the House of Representatives. Maybe that's indicating sort of further ambitions. I, I mean, it's bold. He could be the prime minister. That's the, if that's the strategy, that's the strategy. Well, it does, <laughs> does fit my ongoing thesis that we must stop referring to uh, Greens, One Nation and so on as minor parties. You know, the, the, the Greens have hovered somewhere between 10 and 13% of the vote for about four decades now. That's, yeah. Yeah. that's, that's when not will minor. They graduate? In, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> not, it's not minor in, in any, Senate, in so any yeah. and they have enormous power. It's not minor in any sense of the word. Mm. Um, but, uh, but no, I'm not saying those two guys look the same, but have you ever seen them in the same room at the same time? <laughs> uh, it, is, it is time to talk about uh, coronavirus and uh, because it, it is still unfolding it is uh, uh we can br we did talk about it a lot last week so we can briefly review it but uh it's it's uncovering more and more of the fault lines uh around what's happening inside china there's a terrific story uh which i got onto via paul kelly via the washington post about the doctor in wuhan who actually said to one of his colleagues on uh social media uh, gee, you know, we've just done the um, the analysis of this uh, virus that someone's come in with. Looks very much like SARS, and they were because coronavirus is does look very much like SARS, and so that's what it looked like in the first instance. And uh, about a dozen or so medicos were were chatting about, oh my God, is this SARS coming back or whatever? So they were hauled in, yeah, and um, and and essentially admonished and if not prosecuted. 
And then, of course, two weeks later, it's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, actually, it is, there is a bit of an issue there. Mm-hmm. So this, this is what happens when the state controls the flow of information and all the early warning systems that you rely on in, in, in pandemics or, or in any kind of system are actually suppressed. So quite apart from, Morgan, the, the Marxist implications of communism, this is actually Leninism. This is, this yeah. is the centralisation of power and information has these kind of effects. That's right. So, um, in fact, when we talked about this last week, we were hoping that we wouldn't talk about it this week, obviously, um, we have to. Uh, so the latest numbers on the coronavirus as of, we are recording this on Wednesday, um, is 20,000 infected or um, affected with 400 or so dead. The um, replication rate seems to have slowed in the last couple of days, but there's obviously just massive number of a massive amount of uncertainty. And it's precisely because um, uh, the Chinese government is increasingly cracking down on information. So uh, from um, a lot of people's observation, the um, initial um, the in December when they were when the Chinese government was preventing um, doctors and medicos from talking about this, it, there was quite strong information control. But probably this January has been um, the the most open the Chinese media has been for at least a decade um, because of this general panic, these general concerns. Um, and there's some really interesting um, stuff being written about that at the moment, um, but there seems to be a new crackdown on information as well. There is some good news, um, something um, that come out came out yesterday, in fact. The claim that um, the, uh, the disease could be transmitted even from people who didn't display any symptoms seems to be wrong. So that materially changes, I think, the, um, uh, the, the strategies that people are using to quarantine um, uh, different countries and different cities out and suggest that, you know, you'll be showing symptoms and that we can see if you're showing symptoms. Which brings me to the actual topic of discussion. Of course, on the weekend, Scott Morrison announced um, really significant travel restrictions between China and Australia as, uh, in fact, immediately as of the 1st of February 2020, any travellers arriving or transiting through mainland China, regardless of their nationality, um, uh, will be denied entry into Australia with the exception of Australian citizens, permanent residents, immediate family members of Australian citizens, permanent residents, and they will, of course, be also subject to enhanced screening. Um, This has some really significant economic implications and economic repercussions. Um, Of course, you know, I I work at a university and um, the Australian higher education sector is very dependent on Chinese students. Um, Nearly two-thirds of Australian university Chinese students are currently abroad, apparently, which is around 100,000 Chinese students, many of them paying full fees. I think all of them paying full fees. Um, So uh, uh, Monash University has already delayed its first, um, uh, delayed the start of its semester. Um, We're not sure what the other universities will do. But this is a really Mm. significant hit to um, Australian export markets. Um, Education is the fourth largest export market that we have. Um, uh, And, and, you know, I'm I'm not really doubting the... um, genuineness of the Australian government's concern on this and I think it's really important and it's partly very important because there's so much uncertainty about what's happening in China but this is a really major economic decision that they've made. Zach, um, uh, how, do you, how do you think about this? What's, the, what's your take? Well, it's so hard to get any sort of accurate information about what's actually going on in Wuhan province and what's actually going on in China because that's the whole idea of the communist state is that information is scarce, information is um, limited, and we're relying on the official information being sent out as far as death tolls, as far as infection rates. Um, and there's a very big political incentive to minimise the, the risk, risk of that, particularly until it reaches a tipping point where the Chinese government thinks it can no longer control it. But if they think there's any possibility that they can c- contain it, then it's going to be them sort of minimising the risk. So getting, getting accurate information is um, one of the most difficult um, parts of this. And I found it really interesting. I saw um, a Xi Jinping um, announcement that was reported on today or yesterday 
where he sort of identified that bureaucratization had been part of the problem and issued a warning that said that anyone who was dealing with the virus who was overly bureaucratic taking overly bureaucratized steps, ticking every box and these sorts of things would be punished for it. So I don't I don't know wow. how the logistics would, you would not want to be people. a uh, Chinese bureaucrat right now. So. Yeah. yeah, that's that's called a no win. <laughs> no, but this is this is uh, and just think uh, about uh, it. And, and so just before we go on, yeah. um uh, your abs- uh, your point about the students I was reading this morning is so right that even if say a fortnight from today the Australian government says, "Oh, guess what? We found a cure." Uh, we can wave a magic wand. There's nothing to worry about. They can all come. You, you literally could not fly that number of students into Australia in time for the start of the university year. Like yep. it, 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 we're already talking massive dislocation, regardless of what happens over the next month. Yeah, I don't know. If, uh, I, I don't want to. I feel like it's uh, overstating the problem. I think uh, Australian universities are overly dependent on international students, um, as a, the, a high proportion of which may come from China. I, I think if there's, a, if there's a side effect of this, which is that universities are weaned off that uh, dependence, uh, frankly, I, I think that's, uh, that could be good. But I, I, I can't see how you could make that claim with any other export industry. So, mm. so, uh, so as I said, so Australia's fourth largest export is education. Um, that's, you know, n- the first is coal. The second is iron ore and concentrates. The third is natural gas. The fourth is education, and almost predominantly university education. Could you bring yourself to say the same thing, though, about, oh, well, it's good that we've weaned ourselves off the Chinese market for iron ore? No, 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 and you wouldn't make that. I wouldn't make that claim about the others because I think it's, uh, even though it's uh, classed as an export, I think it is in a a sort of category of its own. It's It's a unique kind of export, which... I think I think you know, given the the amount of uh, uh, government involvement and swampiness within the university sector, I think it's I, I think it's okay to treat it uh, as a unique item. Look, I mean, it's obviously unique insofar as that we don't literally send physical goods yeah. to a different country. I, and, and I understand you know, that. And, but, and but, trading but, iron ore doesn't change the nature of your domestic institutions. No, but d- no, well, <laughs> but it doesn't change the nature of our domestic institutions if we're stable liberal Democrats as well. I mean, um, and the foreign transparency um, is, is, issue is a is a strong um, issue that we need to deal with. But but fundamentally, we are talking about, and we should not be blasé about. Um, really cutting the legs off one of the sources of our prosperity and one of the sources of our prosperity. This is our biggest service industry. Um, uh, The the next service industry after that um, is tourism and then it's just lots more minerals. Which is also, of course, being really significantly hit. But this is is a really, really significant economic decision that the government's made. So isn't it interesting, this this really is a case study in, in how governments manage risk um, and uh, in it because the way governments manage risk is is not in accordance with classical risk analysis. Um, you know, there's a whole field of risk communication, and you know, in, in public health and other fields. So everything you've talked about, let's take that as red. So the steps the government is taking, saying you can't fly here, uh, if you've been to Wuhan, forget about it. You know, um, you can come in via via Christmas Island. So massive, massive dislocation. The government didn't blink. It didn't didn't. Uh, there's no cost-benefit analysis here because even risk analysis is in the language of, you know, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, yeah. one in a hundred thousand. And, of course, in, in the global scheme of things, when last week I said that there was sort of an overreaction, I meant in the sense of the, the epidemiology of it. Uh, there's still nothing to suggest that the scale of, you know, no one wants to get the flu and die, you know, blast it. You know, it's horrible. But... Um, it's 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 no greater than SARS, which we manage. There's no greater than other things. But when governments are faced with these risks, even if it's one in a million, all of the incentives are just to say no. Yeah. Because they would be held accountable for that yeah. one case. So notwithstanding the effect on tourism and uh, and the university, they've just done it. And no, that, uh, look, look, and I'm I'm actually I don't want to second guess that decision that they've made, mm. and um uh, and they the Australian government is a um. It's a relatively efficient government by global standards, mm. um, which is not to say that it's efficient <laughs> government, um, but it's a, you know, and it's a relatively public-minded government. So they will be, and Scott Morrison, when making this decision, will have taken the best advice that the Australian government could pull up. And I, I very 
much doubt there are cynical ulterior motives Indeed, or anything yeah. like that. I think you, I probably would have made the same. It, decision it would have been more. It would have been more cynical to say, yeah. "Boy, this is really going to yeah. hurt our tourism but, industry." But, but. I don't think that we should downplay how significant mm. an economic decision this is. It is really cutting off at the legs, potentially, our fourth biggest export. I would just, I would just bring up um, the sort of, if we're going to talk about it in sort of purely economic terms, the comparative... We could do virology the, terms the, as well. The, That's the comparative <laughs> advantage thing about, about that so much of China itself is shutting down so many other countries. I know the US has um, introduced even stricter travel um, bans, as far as I'm aware. So it's not like there's some alternate universities that all these students are suddenly going to change no, over No, that's to. absolutely right. Oh, and, and I think what Australia has to do is preserve the fact that um, they're still welcome. I mean, the, the, the issues with the CCCP, it's not, it's not with the students, and, and uh, the universities are rightly taking whatever measures they can to communicate with the students and try and do workarounds. And, 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 and this is why it's a crisis of totalitarianism, the fact that there is a dominant totalitarian or authoritarian country um, that suppresses information, that lets these things get out of control in the first place, and then suppresses information that prevents us from having a good read of what's going on in that country, that we are simultaneously very economically tied to. This is a this is a um, export. Uh, this is a crisis of um, the fact that we have a, tot a very very large, economically wealthy totalitarian country in the global economy. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not wrapped in some of the solutions that people have presented to that, but we have to look at square in the face mm -hmm. that this is a problem that they have um, they have created. All countries can get new can invent new flus and new diseases, but it is the totalitarian nature of the Chinese state that has made us put us in this situation. Indeed, uh, we have come to that segment of the show where we talk about our books and culture picks, what we've been reading, watching or listening to. We have a bit of a selection today, two books a, um, uh, and two movies, uh, one documentary, one uh, which is, uh, Chris, is the sequel to a Stephen King book. I it think. is the sequel to a Stephen King book and a uh, Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, and we separate uh, the shining Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick versions um, because uh, they are actually quite different in lots of different ways. Um, so Doctor Sleep is the adaptation of, um, uh, sorry, Doctor Sleep is this sequel. It follows a book called Doctor Sleep um, uh, and, of course, follows the movie The Shining. It's directed by um, uh, Mike Flanagan, who directed the Netflix series The Haunting of Hill House. It stars Ewan McGregor as an older version of Danny Torrance, who's the young boy in the original um, uh, book and film of The Shining. And he's facing up against a cult, uh, bear with me, a cult of psychic vampires calling <laughs> themselves the true knot. And if you hear that sentence and you, you sort of shoulders shrug with disappointment, I sort of feel the same way. This is, um, it's, it's an enjoyable movie. It's a modern horror movie. Thank God it wasn't just a remake of The Shining. Um, uh, which, of course, is the way most studios would look at these things. Um, it builds this incredibly complex mythology. And so I watched The Shining quite recently um, and, in fact, read the book quite recently. And you realise that, that so much of it is unexplained. Well, this being the era of sequels, everything needs to be deeply over-explained. So we need to know so much about the concept of Shining. We need, to, we need to know how it functions. We need to know how it can be extracted from people, what it looks like. It's, it's got a, it, it looks like a vapour. I don't know whether you knew this. The shine is a vapour that comes out of people. Um, uh, so it's an enjoyable movie, but it's just depressing to see what is such a... Um, beautiful cultural work of um, fiction in The Shining, both the movie and the book, be just wildly over-explained and overdone. It's precisely like, and I'll, it's, it's in, I'll talk to you, Morgan, about this. It's like the midi-chlorians We didn't need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's nicer if things are just hard to understand. Suggested. Yeah, it's a terrible instinct of modern storytelling. Uh, it's uh, I'll, I'll, I'll refer to Star Wars again. So, uh, <laughs> I used to love Star Wars, and to I used to appreciate a lot of that sort of 
exploring the backstory and because I was like a hardcore reader. <laughs> um, but that's not for mainstream audiences. That's not you don't you don't build movies out of yeah. <laughs> out of that sort of thing. It's just it's not fun. It's not funny. It's not enjoyable. Why do it? Yeah, we don't we don't want to know that the force. Oh, it's viral. <laughs> you can catch it <laughs> <laughs> like coronavirus. Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Close the borders. Look, look, it's not a terrible movie, and it's mainly um, it's mainly about alcoholism and PTSD after a traumatic experience which, of course, um, uh, would have been the Danny Torrance experience in The Shining and the Overlook Hotel. So it's not a terrible movie and I don't mean to... Was this based on a novel? So it's it's based on Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. Right. So, um, uh, and they diverge in complicated ways because when um, Stanley Kubrick made The Shining movie, he chose to um, make some plot decisions that made it hard to um, knit them all together. But it's 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 a good effort, it's an enjoyable movie, but it just has that... That, yeah. that error that we don't need to know. Yeah. We don't need to know. Um, thank you, Chris. What, what we might do is alternate movies and books. Um, and well, I, this is a book I was going to talk about last week. Um, I have been reading Breaking Point, The Future of Australian Cities by Peter Seema. Uh, Peter Seema is pretty well known uh, in Victoria, maybe not so much nationally. He was a very senior figure in uh, the planning department, uh, established Federation Square. Uh, he is a... Uh, a high-quality public servant, and um, he established Federation Square. Oh uh, yeah, well the, he it was running over time and over budget, okay. and uh, he was sent in to run the uh, the um, to make sure it got done. Okay, which he did um, at vast expense. Would have rather it wasn't done, but that's well, cool. Well, I was about to say everything. Everything <laughs> choices, I've, choices. I mean, everything I've described own. on his CV, which is uh, <laughs> he's he's a, a powerful, influential, experienced, and well-respected public servant. And how you receive that information depends entirely on your view of what the what public servants are here to Would do. Would a Federation bo- Square be better as an abandoned construction site? Ah, uh, well, actually, you can blame <laughs> Kenneth, Kenneth for that. So, um, in any event, in any event, um, but Pete, Peter is a uh, is a planner. So he's written a book about the future of the Australian cities, uh, which of course are growing at an enormous rate. Uh, because of population growth and and so good on him for asking the questions about how on earth we're going to manage this um, as a planner naturally he thinks the answer is more and better planning uh, which uh, I'm not sure is the case you know there's a lot of discussion around say the virtues of um, uh, in the US we take cities like Houston which have an absolutely minimalist approach to zoning and planning and seem to be uh, doing much much better than the cities on the uh, Atlantic and Pacific seaboards so God forbid that we should become overplanned uh, and have uh, live out planners dreams but I'm actually going to cherry pick out of this book uh, it is an interesting book but one of the Many uh, interesting points Peter makes along the way is about uh, the bias towards the inner city that we do see. And uh, one of the things, uh, and I think this would be similar in most of our cities, because of the influential nature of uh, the inner city elites, um, they've taken over the National Party, uh, (laughs) they're leading the Green Party now, (laughs) my my local member. Um, Public transport is is where all this plays out. So a Zone 1 trip in the Melbourne rail system is 36% of the cost of a similar trip on the London Underground. What happens is not only is all the infrastructure uh, we overbuild in the inner city and underprovide in the outer suburbs. Morgan, you now have a vested interest in addressing this question. So we overprovide, so at massive capital cost, and we're doing it again in Melbourne with Metro. They've done it in New South Wales uh, with these wretched trams, um, which are like over $2 billion or something. And none of the soul of the monorail either. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It didn't have the mirrored uh, pillars, I think, that were in Yeah, the... no Power Rangers movies filmed. Do I, do I want public transport to have a soul? Anyway, go on. Anyway, so here's the point. So uh, terrific bias towards um, uh, the inner city under the guise of saying, well, we must move people into the CBD. But actually, it's the people who live in that inner ring that benefit from this. And then because of their political clout, they... Um, underprice it. So the the operating costs are actually ruinous. Um, There is a terrific argument which uh, Peter makes on equity grounds and uh, this is one aspect of the book I am very interested in which is that uh, rather than seeking to extend the free tram zone uh, in Melbourne as the Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap, is is arguing for, we should be abolishing it. We should actually be making uh, people pay much, much more uh, it's sending bad signals in terms of supply and demand. 
Um, and we need to question all this because, uh, as I say, we, we've got further massive projects being undertaken at the moment. Um, there's a figure in here, I think it was something like there's, uh, there'll be 36,000 extra um, uh, movements into the CBD as a result of the Metro Tunnel, and this is being talked up in terms of jobs. You, you know, that's $300,000 per job. You know, it's a $12 billion project if they can ever get it going again after the disputes they're having with contractors. Yeah. So there's massive risks in all these uh, projects. It's building up state debt that future generations are going to be paying for. So I don't know whether Peter's got all the solutions, but uh, Australia has to figure out what it's going to do about this population growth. I mean, I think his tagline is, you know, we need we need to build 10 Canberras between now and uh, 2050. But it's the plan which, is which to is prevent us from building 10 Canberras. Right? And so a huge problem is um, uh, the inability that we have to build out in the periphery of our cities. Um, uh, and part of that is because of planners who are pretty sure that people should go and work in the city. And um, uh, and and they don't want us to build more train lines. They don't want us to build um, more freeways, all that sort of thing. But in fact, the people out in the suburbs, of course, tend to work in the suburbs by and large. Um, uh, uh, and sorry, apart from Morgan, obviously, and, and myself, I'm out in the suburbs. Um, uh, but but the, the the incredible failure to open more land on the city's periphery. It's driven by this anti-sprawl bias. Even the word sprawl is this pejorative sense that you know people are just building these nice houses out in the distant suburbs um, with with their lovely um you know you don't need you don't need a uh, backyard or anything like that and then you combine that with the not in my backyard approach and in the inner suburbs as well and we have this massive crisis that um someone like peter seema can complain that we're not building enough houses or we're not expanding our cities to fit, but it's also the planning class that is preventing us from doing so in the first place. And what, what drives that, which he does tease out, is this is, you know, the enthusiasts for public transport, they say. What they really don't like about those houses and, and the jobs out there is that people will drive to them and this, this sort of um, opposition and, and belief that, oh, we need to invest more in public transport because we need to get people out of cars and into public transport. And, and the point he makes is that with all this population growth, so we'll, 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 we'll literally spend, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over the, over the next few decades building all this. And the proportion of trips which are taken by public transport to get to work, which is currently like, you know, 10 12% in Australian cities, will still be about 10 or 12% at the end of that process, but we'll, 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 we'll bear the capital cost because of all of these works. Public transport is great for getting into a city. It's like it's quite a good system to go from a periphery into the city, but that's only something like twenty percent of the population yeah, so, of, so stop doubling of, a, down on of a city and suburb uh, suburb area. So if you're going to have people live in cities, they're probably going to have to drive because they don't drive unless you you're going to wildly overinvest in public transport everywhere. Which um, is which is what we're doing. Which is what we're doing. <laughs> yep. So what is my thought? What so alternating. Okay. Movie. So. Um, Monday Australia time was the Super Bowl and Netflix have opportunistically released this documentary on an NFL player who is known to have killed one person and it's suspected uh, to have killed two other people. Um, the title of the documentary is um, Killer Inside the Mind of Aaron Hernandez, which is dangerously close to the worst pun I've ever heard because by the end of the documentary you see a cross-section of his brain. Oh. <laughs> but... Um, so the reason... So is this a neuropsych thing? Is this yeah, yeah. So it, it builds up to that. So the reason, the reason these murders are fascinating is not just that because they're um, committed by a celebrity, but they're committed by a celebrity at the height of their power. So Aaron Hernandez had played in a Super Bowl in 2013, the same year as the, set, uh, the third murder, that the, the one that actually got him arrested. He was playing for the best team in the NFL in the New England Patriots. And the documentary really focuses on trying to find a motive or an explanation for why this happened, because it's very difficult to actually understand why this happened. Literally, the main reason he got acquitted of the other two murders was because there wasn't a clear motive, and that was what the defence picked on in court. So the, the documentary goes through a few ideas of maybe it was his abusive childhood, Maybe it's drug abuse. Maybe it's the fact that he was a closeted homosexual in a sport that didn't allow that. Um, but by the end, it at, reaches this point of 
looking at CTE, um, so the concussion injuries that he sustained over the life of um, his sporting career, and the fact that it's literally when they, because um, he later committed suicide, so they were able to do an autopsy, the part of his brain that is responsible for decision-making is literally pretty much hollow. It, it was it's really, Hollow due to injury or just... Yeah, due, due yeah. to this concussion effect, it seems to... The concussion effect, because the decision-making part of the brain is the centre part of the brain and it seems to take the most of the impact, um, ha- however which way... Um, so then it ultimately becomes, um, for me, it becomes a sort of interesting piece about this uh, libertarian or conservative idea about personal responsibility, because it's, first of all, how much personal responsibility does a brain-damaged murderer have? But then the documentary is also trying to paint the NFL as sort of the bad guy, but is it the personal responsibility of the players who play in the NFL? Mm. And it's this entire can of worms that has sort of long-term cultural significance because there's all sorts of talk about class action lawsuits against the NFL that might bring it down. It really affects the rugby codes in Australia, I presume the AFL codes. Um, And there was a time I remember in reading things about the 19th century where they literally had authors who were saying that, well, if a few people die playing rugby, that's better better because it will just create a stronger generation that will weed out the weaklings. But we obviously don't live in that time anymore. So how how sustainable these cultural icons that we not st- the most politically correct view that you could share these days. Yeah, and and uh, yes, and it is an issue in AFL as well. I think there's uh, class action being formulated around um, uh, acquired brain injury, and and there are certainly ex AFL players that are coming out and saying they believe that this has affected them. Greg Williams, former Swans and Carlton star, amongst them. Well, it's, it's particularly a problem with the NFL and it's um, one of the things whenever you talk to Americans and contrast rugby with the NFL, um, they always admire the fact that there's no pads in rugby. But it's actually the reason that the NFL has more concussions than any other sport yeah. is because the helmet gives people this false sense of security yeah, so they lead with the other. head in the way yeah. that they never, ever would have yeah. playing rugby. Yeah. Yeah, That's the end result of you know the, the class action that you're talking about is... We'll introduce rules about helmets, and they'll be slamming into each other. And we're yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's, the economics, that's the economics yeah. of seatbelts. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think uh, it did actually lumps, unintended yeah. consequences. I think uh, from memory, it was uh, in the era of Teddy Roosevelt, who who was uh, definitely definitely wanted to save American football in its most you know the most violent, uh, most acceptably violent form that it, that it could. And at that time, people were getting killed all the time. I I once read about uh, they used to have a flying wedge. Um, players would actually sew broom handles into the back of their pants what? so that the man behind them could grab hold. And so the, the guy with the ball uh, would be in the middle of this pack of about a dozen players who, who had all grabbed onto each other's broom handles and they would literally barge through the opposition defensive <laughs> line. <laughs> that was their tactic. That's when it become, stops becoming sport and becomes war. Yeah, that's yeah, that. that's right. So <laughs> you, you think it's violent now. So, so then someone has the bright idea, oh, let's give them helmets. Yeah. That will protect them. Oh and, and, and here we are. <laughs> God. Morgan, elevate this conversation. Elevate the conversation, please. please. If I can, I will. Um, <laughs> no, I, I've, uh, I've just started reading a book titled, and I had to write it down because it's that's yeah, a bit long. Uh, Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution by Amanta hollis Bruski, who is, a, uh, from what I understand, a, a never-Trumper academic a professor of political science at Pomona College in California, I believe. Um, but ne- she, Never Trumper is his job title? Or her. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's right in the description. No, no, no. Research I was, just, and I was looking through the you know, <laughs> Twitter, of course, which is the, the great source of all revelation. Um, and uh, she's an a- analyst of the conservative legal movement. Mm. And uh, this book, it actually, uh, I think the first edition came out in 2015, but I only just discovered it when they republished it last year. Um, so... Given you know the, the Trump administration has made a, even a couple more. Um, so what what is the Federalist Society? The Federalist Society uh, started out as a um, an association of essentially clubs in law schools across uh, America, um, and it was committed to the idea of you know, limited government, uh, individual freedom, uh, and believing that judges should say what the law is 
rather than what they believe it should be. So uh, this came this comes on the back of you know decades upon decades of uh, progressive legal establishment forming um, and implementing those ideas in the judiciary in the Supreme Court and completely dominating the profession. Uh, so this was uh, this was a reaction to that. Um, and what the the story and you know it's a it's an education it's a sort of like a professional association almost for, um, and it's been incredibly effective um, in introducing into the mainstream and making it the sort of conservative standard legal philosophy of originalism which is to say that the meaning of the constitution was set at the time it was written uh, and that's the meaning that uh, should persist through time. Um, and I thought that the book itself would actually be a narrative about about the you know the, the history of legal pro- progressive legal doctrine and how the federal society was formed and uh, the successes they've had. But it actually wasn't really about that. And I think maybe this is less interesting for the viewers, but it was more interesting for me. Uh, it, it, it sought to uh, apply or develop an analytical model about how the Federalist Society uh, actually achieves change in the legal profession. Uh, it uses phrases like um, epistemic community and political epistemic networks, which when I normally see things like that, I sort of yeah. tune out. But it was, it was <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, no, miss me with that. Uh, but I was, I was very interested in this because it's something that is so important for to develop in Australia, which is, I always say that, you know, Australia, the Australian legal profession is where the American legal profession was in the 1970s. Um, it's, it's dominated by um, you know, progressives in all the sort of professional institutions. Um, and there's no, and this is, the, the book talks about, you know, it's not just enough to say that while we have seven High Court judges, if we just have a good Attorney General who appoints four good judges, then, you know, done. Yep. Uh, you've achieved, you, you know, they'll, imp- they'll implement the changes and then they'll set the precedent and that'll just, that'll, that'll fix things. And it's, it's obviously not true. I mean, even at the first instance, it's not true because a future court will just overturn that anyway. But what this explains is how you need a profession which also believes in these ideas. You or you need judges on lower courts who also believe the, these ideas to essentially construct um, and, and share this uh, ideological framework which can be filtered up through the courts mm. and can be successively over, over you know, over different courts can be sort of reinterpreted, re, um, reapplied and reapplied over and over again and become a standard sort of conservative philosophy. Um, and so... So it's a playbook. It really it, is. It's a playbook. It it's, should be a, a playbook my, for it's the my, Australian legal profession. Yeah, my, my ambition is actually to write a book about what the Australian conservative legal community needs to do uh, to be like the Federalist Society, which is a really unique organisation. And I think this is... You know, I, I got. I'm getting a great deal of um, enjoyment and use out of this. Well, I consider that a verbal contract. Um, <laughs> the the most. I mean, what that really underlines to me, and I'm looking forward to reading the book because it sounds amazing. Um, really underlines to me is that you have to actually win the argument at the level of ideas, mm. and that that success at the level of ideas brings more adherence. You can coordinate yeah. around those ideas, and that's what the Federalist Society does. But fundamentally, it is still, but certainly started as, an intellectual movement about bringing out the implications of the philosophy yeah. of one particular way of reading um, uh, legislative history or or the role of the judge. And they say, well, you know, it's it's the original intent is what matters, what Parliament or the legislature or the founders thought at any given time. That's an argument, yeah, and and you have to win it, and then over time, you know, and and now everybody's very excited that Donald Trump is putting a lot of Federalist Society approved people on, um, in in various courts, and of course on the Supreme Court. But that's only possible because there are highly qualified people who share those views, yep. who have been taught those views by colleagues who've been involved in the Federalist Society who were taught them by colleagues who were involved in the Federalist Society generations previous. That That is that is how political change happens yep. and it starts with ideas. Yep, exactly right. No, it looks like a, a terrific book and we'll put links up to that in our show notes and as Berg said, I think we'll all go and get some copies of that. 
Uh, you have been listening to Looking Forward, a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to join or donate or just understand more of our research, please go to ipa.org.au. I'm Scott Hargraves. I'd like to say a big thank you to uh, my fellow panellists, Chris Berg. Thank you. Morgan Begg. Thanks, Scott. Zach Gorman. Cheers. And a big shout-out to uh, Josh in the studio. Thank you, mate. Uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 